0: So we talked we I think I don't know where I left off of the state of stress in America. American Psychological Association has been doing some very interesting research and they said one of the things they found, and I think this is pretty obvious, that but seventy-eight percent of adults say that the COVID nineteen pandemic has been a significant source of stress in their lives. Recently they updated it and said sixty-one percent of US adults report undesired weight gain since the start of the pandemic. And roughly 50, 50% said it's affected their behavior in a negative way, like increasing tension in their bodies, getting angry quickly, unexpected mood swings, and screaming and yelling at loved ones. Um, I know for us, with the pandemic started, we were in the state of Virginia. We had two small children. Now we have a third one. And it added a lot of tension for everybody being in the house with a lot of this uncertainty. And so right now, and I think, People are stressed about being stressed. And there's actually a term for that. It's called meta stress. And I'm here to tell you today that what you've been feeling right now is absolutely normal and no one is immune to it. But there's actually good news about stress that we're going to talk about today. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to demystify it. We're going to talk about what is stress and what is it really. We're going to talk about how to regulate and frame stress in the moment, and then I'm going to give you some tools for things you can do in the moment to regain your sense of attention. And then we're going to talk about how to lean into stress to change your brain. Before we talk about what stress is, let's talk about what stress is not. Stress is not some evolutionary thing that was designed solely for the purpose of cavemen fleeing from predators. Uh, It's not this awful thing or system that we need to get rid of although it does come with some emotions and feelings that can be uncomfortable. And I wanna make a bold statement right now, but short-term stress, let's say you go into a meeting or I'm presenting in front of a bunch of people right now, there's a little bit of short-term stress. That is not the enemy, okay? Let's talk about what stress is. Stress is a generic response or process that's used to mobilize other systems in the body or brain to actually do something. It's generic in nature, and the body and the mind cannot differentiate between physical stress and psychological stress. And so there's this generic response. And because it's generic in nature, it actually gives us an advantage in controlling it. You see, there's hardwired mechanisms in the body that will allow you to actually put on the brake if you want or actually put on the gas. Sometimes you actually want to ramp up stress so that you can be more responsive to a situation, which I don't think most people would think of. Now, stress is tightly linked to emotion. Stress is often used to describe an experience that elicits feelings of anxiety, maybe frustration, to threaten your security, and push you beyond your ability to successfully cope. So it does have an emotional connection. And stress can come from a lot of different places. There's a difference between a stress and a stressor. Stress can come from things like your family, positive and negative. You can have a positive, let's talk about like money. If you've got a lot of money in the bank, that's a stressor, it may not be a big issue. If you're suffering and right now you lost your job, yeah, that's a big stress. Politics is a stress. Exercise is a stress. So there's a lot of different areas where stressors can come down, you know, stress can come from. But I want to do a little bit of myth busting here for a second. And there's this uh, this is Chris Hoy and he's a six-time Olympic gold medalist and one of the most decorated Olympic cyclists of all time. And there's this myth that the best in the world don't experience stress. Pick the the job, an athlete. We're about to see the Olympics coming up. That's completely false. When Chris was describing what it was like to race in an Olympic finals, he said he felt like he was going to the gallows. This wasn't just any cyclist. This was the best cyclist of all time. And he literally was saying when it was time to race for an Olympic gold medal, he felt like he was going to die. Okay, so there's this myth that champions never experience uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Listen to this very careful carefully. If the outcome of an event or an experience is uncertain or it will be judged, you should expect to feel uncomfortable. Think about COVID. The outcome of COVID back a year ago was completely uncertain, and so we had stress about it. You go up and do a presentation in front of your colleagues, you're going to be judged. The outcome is uncertain. You should expect to feel stress. An Olympic athlete racing for a gold medal, the outcome is unexpected. They're going to get judged, so there's going to be stress. But the way you feel does not determine how you perform. So we'll come back to this later, but the key is I want you to be open to the idea that it's okay, you can sit in these unpleasant sensations and you can be open to it and then emotion won't get in the way of your performance. We're going to talk about how to deal with that here in a little bit. But here's one of the keys. Your brain decides which experiences are stressful and determines your behavioral and your physiological response because your brain is part of something called the nervous system, and the nervous system connects your body to your brain. It creates sensations, perceptions, feelings, thoughts, and actions. And it controls things like our vital functions, like our heart rate, our breathing, our digestion, things that you just really don't even think about that are happening, but it also regulates our level of arousal. And there's this delicate balance between a state of alertness and a state of calmness, and that is really what stress is. So there's a continuum of alertness to calmness, and on the far left of this uh, slide here, you'll see a state of pain. Uh, This is not optimal for daily activities and well-being. It is good, though, for certain situations. So let's say you're driving down the road, and somebody runs a red light, and you have to slam on your brakes and swerve to miss them to save your family or whatever, like you're gonna rapidly move up this continuum to a state of panic. You could be highly stressed from like a work deadline or a major deadline that's coming up. And when you're on this left side of the continuum, it comes with these unpleasant feelings, this sense of agitation, and it biases us towards impulsive action Rather than nuanced thought or discernment, think back to yourself for a moment, like a time when you were in a very tense conversation and you wanted to say something and you just kept wanting to say something. That can get you in trouble sometimes. And so you need to be aware that when you have these, you go into this high state of alertness that your body is gearing up to do something. That's what it's, it's driving you to. It's like a go signal. If you're stuck in this perpetual state of panic, or extreme stress. It's very bad for your physical health and well-being. So if you can't manage short-term stress, it's going to turn into long-term chronic stress, and that can be a problem. But what I really want to focus today is on that short-term bouts of stress and how you can deal with those. On the opposite end of this spectrum is these, is calmness. If you go to the far, you have coma, and then there's deep sleep. Which is restores physical and mental health and well being. And we're going to talk about that here in a little bit. But the ideal state for you to exist in is a state of alert calmness. How great would that be to be doing your work? You're alert, but you're calm. You're able to focus, but you're not like jacked up on caffeine to the point where you just get jittery, but you're relaxed and you can think. That is exactly. That's that's not where you want to be. That's a bad spot, but you want to be an alert calmness, okay? So let's talk about the short-term stress response. Imagine you were to have to get up right now, and this audience was full of people. Most people, actually, the number one fear in the world is public speaking, which is funny to me because it's, people fear public speaking more than they fear dying. So what would happen if you were to get up right now and have to speak to several hundred, you would have an acute stress response. I'm gonna get a little scientific for a second, but just hang in there with me. There's a branch of your body called the autonomic nervous system. Uh, It's a branch of the nervous system, and it's gonna activate something called the sympathetic nervous system. It has nothing to do with sympathy. Rather, it refers to a group of neurons that run from the neck to the navel region. And when this sympathetic nervous system is activated, It releases uh, some different neurochemicals. One is called acetylcholine, and we're going to talk about that later, which leads to a dump of adrenaline into your body. When adrenaline is released, your heart rate speeds up, your pupils dilate, blood is shifted from your gut and reproductive system to your heart, and to your working muscles, your throat gets dry because your salivary glands shut down, your palms may get a little sweaty. It's this go signal. It is this huge get into action you're going to feel a sense of agitation and you'll want to move or to say something. That's what happens under acute stress. And like I said earlier, if you don't learn how to regulate it, it can get you in trouble, especially maybe you're dealing with your boss or a colleague or a client that's agitating you. So How do we regulate this? Boom, something big happens. Something, somebody comes in and delivers like some really bad news. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, but you need to be able to think, what can you do right now? Well, that's what we're going to get into. The first thing is, Breathing, okay, it's really amazing what can happen with the breath. And we're going to talk about the inhale and the exhale, and I'm going to give you a cool tool. So when you inhale, there's a muscle called the diaphragm that moves down. And it moves down to create more space for your heart and your lungs. And when the space is created, blood flows slower in the heart. So the brain sends a signal to your heart, says speed up. So if you want to be more alert, let's say you're tired in the morning. You want to be like, I got to get ready to go to this meeting. If you inhale deeper, more aggressively or longer, it's going to ramp up your state of arousal. So you could breathe in really quickly like this or just like a five or six, maybe eight second inhale. It's going to make you more alert. So think about this. Have you ever heard somebody say, Hey, just calm down, take a deep breath. That is the worst thing that you could ever do, okay? The best thing that you could do is take a long exhalation because this is what happens when you breathe out, the diaphragm moves up, there's less space for the heart, blood actually flows faster, and the brain sends a signal to the heart to say, calm down, slow down. So if you want to increase your state of calmness, longer inhalations are better. So like maybe you breathe in for four to six seconds and then just breathe out for six to eight. So you want to almost double your inhales, exhales. So two seconds to four seconds in, four to eight seconds out. These long exhalations will actually decrease your level of stress and arousal. Okay, So the breath is an amazing tool and mechanism. So you see these like, breathing exercises that people do, and there's a biological reason why they do them. The, second, the next thing I want to talk about is the fastest way to de-stress in the moment, and it's something called a physiological sigh. It's the fastest way to de-stress using a mechanical non-cognitive tool, and it's a hardwired neural circuit for rapidly de-stressing. It's a pattern of breathing that all animals and humans engage in spontaneously when carbon dioxide gets too high in the system. So, this actually happens during sleep. It happens after sobbing. And it actually happens uh, in claustrophobic environments. And what it is, is it's two inhales followed by a long extended exhale. So, like this. So, two back to back inhales maximal and then long exhale. What it does is it maximally inflates these tiny little sacs in your lungs called alveoli. And then it unloads a ton of, of carbon dioxide. You do this three to four times in a row and you will feel your level of arousal immediately drop. So if you've ever seen somebody sobbing and then they go like that is a physiological side you can actually use this to your advantage. So let's say like right before I got on this presentation, I'm a little amped up and ready to go. And so I'm going to go, okay, two, I'm going to do this three to four times. Okay. You will immediately feel this lowering. You'll be moving along that continuum back towards that center of calmness and alertness. Now, that's something you can do in the moment. Okay. So you can do Long extended exhalations for maybe a minute or two minutes, or you can do physiological size. Another thing that you can do to regulate your level of alertness and calmness, and it will affect a whole host of other biological functions, and it's super simple, is your relationship to the sun, okay? Because every day when we wake up, we ascend and descend on a continuum of alertness and calmness. And it's related to our relationship to the sun. So there's something called the, your circadian clock. And when you wake up in the morning and you go outside and you look at bright light, okay, it increases, it sends a signal to this little thing on the top of the roof of your mouth called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. You don't have to remember that word, but that's what it is. And then that sends a signal to every single cell in your body that it's time to wake up. Unfortunately, uh, light in the house does not do this very well. You actually have to go outside and you want to do it immediately upon waking because what, this is what's going to do. For everybody that's really interested, it's going to increase your level of cortisol, which is a stress hormone, which is good. You're going to feel more alert. Then what it does is it kicks off this, this countdown timer the 12 to 16 hours later to increase something called melatonin, which is a sleepy hormone, which makes you go to sleep at night. So literally just waking up in the morning, going outside and just looking in the direction of the sun. If you're in a major city, just taking in light, okay, will increase this, your level of alertness during the day. And it'll help you fall asleep faster at night. So two to 10 minutes upon waking within 30 minutes, go outside and do this. A new research literally just came out in a matter of weeks, just weeks ago, demonstrated that people that go to bed earlier and wake up earlier, so like literally go to bed one hour earlier, specifically if you can get it under midnight, for every hour they went to bed earlier, they had a 23% reduction in major depressive symptoms, and they tied it back to genetic things. When they looked at the mechanism why this worked, it was because people that woke up earlier got more direct sun exposure and it kicked off all of these biological activities. So literally by you, but you have to go outside. Looking through a window is 50%, 50 times less effective. So if the sun is bright, you just need to be out there two minutes. It's like an overcast skies, maybe up to eight to ten. But it will dramatically make an impact in your level of calmness and alertness and how you can descend and ascend these levels of stress. The next thing you want to be aware of is nighttime exposure to light. So in the morning, you want to get as much light as you can because it's going to help you be more alert. It's going to help you move up and down the stress continuum. But at night, you want to avoid bright light, especially after the hours of 11 PM. So 11 to 4 AM, you want to avoid light at all at all possible. And the reason is this, we're very sensitive to light at night and it will disrupt melatonin, which is that sleepy hormone that makes you want to go to sleep. And it activates something called the habenula in your brain. The habenula has a um, nickname, the disappointment nucleus. And the reason for that is is it decreases something called dopamine. And what dopamine is, is it's the hormone or the neuromodulator of motivation. So when dopamine levels are high in the brain, you can consistently continue to pursue difficult goals. And looking at the sun early in the morning also helps with dopamine levels. When you look at it at night, bright light after 11 p.m., it drains this dopamine tank. So when you feel like, you know what, I have no motivation to keep moving forward. I feel like I'm getting burned out. A lot of this could do with biological processes that you can anchor just by looking at light at certain times of the day and avoiding looking at light at other times of the day. So it's very, very simple. Bright light after 11 p.m., you definitely don't want to look at it. People are like, oh, well, if I put on my blue light blocking glasses, that'll take care of it. That's completely false. It's light of any kind. Electronic light, doesn't matter actually as a matter of fact during the day unless you have blue light sensitivity you actually want to take those off because the more blue light you get in your eyes the more alert you're going to be so there's a little another myth buster for you okay what about this thing called mindfulness okay so mindfulness is not about relaxation it has everything to do with attention so remember we talked earlier about Chris Hoy, and he said when he was racing the Olympic finals, it said, he said it felt like he was going to the gallows. But this is what I didn't tell you, as he went on to explain that in that moment, when he felt this terrible sensation, he would shift his attention and he would feel his hand gripping the, the steering wheel. He would feel his shoes in the clips of his bike. And he would start to focus his attention to where it needed to be so they could get off to a great start. So here's the thing. Dr. Peter Haberl says attention is the currency of performance. And what mindfulness teaches us to do is it teaches us to take control of our attention and to place it where we want it when we want it there. So in crucible situations or times when you have these unpleasant sensations, if you're open to the idea that you can sit with these negative thoughts, feelings, and emotions, and they then they won't get in your way of your performance. So a great example of this would be, okay, I let's go back to public speaking. I'm doing this presentation right now. Let's say I got really stressed out. I would go, okay, I'm going to apply one of my breathing tools before I go on. I'm going to do four to five physiological size. <sighs> I'm going to do that for a few. Okay, I can feel my arousal coming. My level of alertness is coming back nor towards the middle. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to be aware of where my attention is. I'm going to start thinking about my opening line and my opening statement in that first slide. So I can regulate my physiology. And because I practice things like mindfulness, now I can shift my attention to where I want it, which is under my opening statement and maybe on my notes or whatever. So you can see how you can start pairing these things together. A great way to practice mindfulness, uh, there's apps out there like Insight Timer, Headspace, calm. If you have an Apple watch, there's actually something called the breed app. And that's, that's a way to practice mindfulness. It's an unbelievable tool if you know how to use it in the appropriate context and situation. All right, so now we're gonna talk about how to lean into stress to actually modify your brain and change your brain. So stress is something that you can actually use to your advantage. If anyone has picked up a new skill during the pandemic, or you know, maybe you like, wanted to learn a new skill, maybe want to learn a new language, or you want to learn lean into something really hard for work, like they've asked you to do something new, and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to acquire this whole skill set. Now you feel your stress level coming up. You can actually change your brain. And so neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to modify itself in response to experience. And so we're going to talk about how you can use stress to actually do this. So if I want to, let's say, learn a new skill and it requires me to read, what you have to do is you have to bring focus to some perceptual event. Let's say I'm reading a difficult passage of text or maybe I'm, like I said, learning how to code or performing a difficult training exercise or whatever. I have to bring my attention. See, attention's like a diffuse light. Like in this room, the light's dispersed all over the place. But if I can bring my attention like a spotlight on the thing that I want to learn, what happens is we actually move ourselves up that ramp of stress. The body begins to release those chemicals, the acetylcholine and the adrenaline. So if you notice, like when like you sit down at work and you're like, okay, I'm about to do, I believe I made a playbook about a 90-minute work sprint. But if you're about to do a 90 minutes of hard work, you're going to feel a sense of agitation. Like, ah, I don't want to have to work your way into it. That's the body's natural response. It's releasing adrenaline. It's helping focus your attention. And when you can really concentrate on what you're doing and bring a singular focus to your work, that neuromodulator acetylcholine goes into your brain and it marks the neurons that are being used to learn that new thing for change later when you go to sleep. Okay. When you go to sleep those neurological connections that were used to learn that new skill are strengthened during sleep it's absolutely amazing if you're not getting adequate sleep you could be working really hard at work to learn something new but if you're not getting adequate sleep your brain is not able to create those strong neurological connections so the gateway is focus and agitation and then those connections are solidified when you go to sleep at night so you have to get really good periods of sleep and then there's things like non-sleep rest where you're just completely disconnecting. So you should work in periods of really difficult stress, like maybe a 90-minute sprint of really difficult stress. If you want to learn more about this, you can read the playbook I wrote on it. And then periods of complete rest, 20 minutes. Maybe you go on a walk in the building. Maybe you, you don't want to be on your social media because that requires focus and attention. But you just want to disconnect and let your brain relax. And that's going to help you actually modify your brain, learn a new skill faster and cement the things that you were doing. All right, we're getting close to the end here, but we're just going to talk a little bit more about sleep. So sleep is the gateway for adaptation. And there's a couple of things that actually happen when we sleep that I want to highlight. One is Restoration. When you sleep at night, it restores your tissue. All the stress that your body was under during the day, maybe you worked out, maybe just exercising, just general living of life. Growth hormone is released during sleep and that actually helps restore your tissues. The next thing that happens, and this is crazy, your brain literally detoxifies itself during... There's a system in your brain called the glymphatic system and it literally flushes metabolic waste products out of your brain some of which are associated with things like Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And then the third thing is learning and neuroplasticity, which we just talked about. So when you sleep, there's two parts of sleep really quick. There's REM sleep and non-REM sleep. During non-REM sleep, your mind actually can learn new motor skills, like how to coordinate itself, learning detailed information about specific events, and during REM sleep, it's like the dreaming stages of sleep is when you derive meaning from experience. It's like you're forming all the relationships of the different algorithms of things that happen during the day. Non-REM sleep, or sorry, REM, not getting enough REM sleep is also associated with emotional irritability. So if you don't get enough sleep at night, you're going to have a hard time being emotionally stable and cementing all the learning that you went through during the day. So, how much sleep do you need? Research demonstrates that you need about seven to nine hours of sleep. My doctoral work, we actually looked at how the brain, how sleep helps your brain adapt to stress. And we found that really seven and a half to nine hours of sleep was that golden window. Most people overestimate how much sleep they get each night by about 30 minutes. So, here's the key if you're a person that's seven and a half is perfect for me, then you really need to be in bed for eight. If you're somebody that that does well with eight hours, then you really need to be in bed for eight and a half. I know that may be a sacrifice for some of y'all, but I think nothing that, I think we would all agree that when you wake up in the morning and you're rested and you're ready to go, it's worth that extra 30 minutes at night that you may be giving up for TV or something else. Last slide before we open up into a QA, I'm a big proponent of naps. Naps are a superpower. I don't use that word very often, but a short 15 to 20 minute nap boosts executive function, meaning your ability to make complex decisions, uh, your emotional intelligence, your mood. Some of you may be like, listen, I'm in an office or I'm going back to an office, like I I can't like lay underneath my desk. Literally, you could just close your eyes. You don't even have to fall asleep. But just 15 minutes of just like completely unplugging, closing your eyes, will help you push through the rest of your day and you'll be sharper both physically and mentally. So 15 to 20 minute nap is a fantastic thing that you can use. Like use that post lunch period when you have this natural dip in energy is a great time to place that. So what did we talk about today? Uh, Key takeaway, stress falls on a continuum. It's from the state of like Panic all the way, coma, but the place that we want to live is a state of alert, calmness. Everyone feels stress. No one's immune to it. The best in the world in whatever field, they feel stress. They just are comfortable with those feelings. Thought They're open that I'm going to be, I'm open to the idea that these thoughts and emotions are going to happen. Then they use mindfulness to direct their attention. They're aware of where their attention is and place it where they want it, when they want it. We talked about how to regulate your body's stress response with the sun and breathing. And then uh, take back your attention with mindfulness. It's not just something that yogis do or whatever. This is a performance tool that everybody can do with a very small amount of time, five to ten minutes. And then we finally talked about leaning into self-imposed stress to change your brain. And then we talked a little bit about sleep and how seven and a half to nine hours, kind of that golden window to take the learnings that you had during the day, solidify them so you can get an edge at work and on your competition. So if this information was helpful and you wanna connect with me across all platforms at Eric Corum, you can find me. Out. I put a lot of stuff up on Instagram. I put like a weekly blog out on, on LinkedIn and I actually have a podcast called The Blueprint where we explore this journey of high performance across multiple domains, of business, military, education, art, And then finally, I have a company called AIM7. And what we do is we say AIM7 sets busy people free by building lifelong healthy habits. We use your wearable technology data to create custom health and well-being recommendations to help you on your wellness journey. If that is something that interests you is like being like you wear a fitness tracker and you're like, you know what? So what if I sleep seven hours or walk 10,000 steps? What does that mean for me? Like, how do I use this information to help me perform better, to have less stress, to have more energy. We have a company for that, and we deliver customized wellness recommendations right to your phone. So if you go to www.aim7.com, you can sign up to be an early beta user. We're about to open that up here pretty soon. It's a very discreet. It just asks for your email, and then we'll contact you when we're when we're live and ready to bring you in, which will be here in about the next four to six weeks. Brian, do you want me to just take it off the screen and open up to Q&A?
1: Yeah, please. Jocelyn is actually going to be running Q&A, so uh, you guys can kick off. Hi, Perfect. Eric.
0: Hey.
2: Um, <laughs> Thanks for joining us um, again, and I'm looking forward to our conversation later this week. We have some questions here from the group, so I'll just start off with the first one here, and Eric, can you tell us what the relationship is between stress and resiliency?
0: Wow, that's a really, that's a good one. So it's really your response to stress and resilience. I think, Brian, I don't know if we talked about this in the past before, but Being resilient, or some people may say mentally tough, is uh, task-specific. So if you want to be resilient at anything, whether it's resilient at work, resilient in your personal relationships, whatever it might be, you need to learn to have mechanisms to deal with the stress for that specific situation, learn how to adapt to that stress, and then you will develop more resilience in that specific environment. Does that make sense? So you can be globally optimistic about life, which is really good. That kind of helps you come into a situation with a better outlook. But if you want to be more resilient in a specific avenue, you actually have to have some reps at it. It doesn't just happen overnight. So public speaking, for instance, if you want to be more resilient at public speaking, you probably want to start small, have some mechanisms in place, dealing with that stress, performing it. In a small way under that stress and then increasing your threshold does that make sense
1: yeah um it, it, i'm going to add a little bit to that jocelyn if that's okay um and eric this will go back to your coaching days but the concept of sort of establishing a functional system when we talk about stress right and like skill acquisition or learning new job skills or just performing at your job right Can we talk about that a little bit more and how stress can impact your ability to make cold calls, close deals, manage product, manage people, whatever have you, and then your ability to level up in your job as well? Because the way that I look at it, if you're overly stressed out and your team is overly stressed out, their ability to learn or excel at their job or learn new skills is highly impacted, right? Because Mm -hmm. that level of resiliency, they haven't gained it yet. So we're adding stress to a system that's already stressed out, which is just adding to it and just making them more, which reduces their ability to get better at their jobs. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it does. I think we need to look at this as a continuum. So, when some, I would say when you onboard somebody new, you need to be very uh, thoughtful about how you bring them into the environment and how much you put on their plate to begin with so that they can be able to get comfortable. You give them some early wins, they become a little more resilient, you slowly, slowly add more pressure to the situation as their capacity begins to expand. Now, look, I have a startup, like it's full throttle all the time. And so I am personally, I can empathize with this question, because there are days when I don't feel very resilient. And I have to go back to the tools and the mechanisms that I have told people about that I need to put it back in place for myself. Am I getting enough sleep? Am I creating the conditions for adaptation and resilience? Sleeping, am I eating? Am I exercising enough? Am I exercising too much? Am I taking frequent breaks throughout the day? Am I staying engaged with my family and healthy social relationships? Like you have to till the soil, so to speak, and create the right conditions. And when those conditions are right, Then I can handle the stress of work better when the conditions are not right. And so people as we don't want to get into each other's personal lives, but I think there's ways that you can create opportunities for your employees or people on your team to be like, hey, are those conditions right for you? Maybe somebody's like, I've never looked at sleep before. And so they do engage with a sleep tracker or sleep platform or something like we have at AIM7, whatever it is, to start investigating that area. Or maybe it's like they're going through a tough emotional, maybe they had a rough breakup or they're going through a divorce, creating opportunities for them to talk to somebody that's maybe a counselor or a psychiatrist that can work through that so the conditions are right. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the things that we don't think about enough is it's not our ability to just do the thing. It's our ability to draw from the resources that we need to do the thing and so that that doesn't completely drain our tanks and we have to do the thing tomorrow that we're not completely running on fumes and that's when we burn out. Yeah. In sport, we talk about this
1: idea of like window of trainability, right? Can they adapt to the stress that you're about to give them? And then in Mm -hmm. business, it's really the same exact thing, right? You want to upskill your team. That's fantastic. If you want to upscale, but by giving them that stress, are you going to have a positive or negative adaptation? And that's what mm-hmm. we need to look at, right? Is as managers ultimately our job is being able is giving stress or reducing stress. Mm-hmm. And if you bucket it that way, and you look at your team and say, do they have the resources, like you mentioned, to be able to adapt to the stress that I'm about to give them? And if they don't, that's when you back off, dial it back a little bit, and allow that recovery process to start happening.
0: And offer them some tools like you guys have in your platform Mm -hmm. to, if they can self-identify, okay, listen, this is an area I want to grow in because I know it's going to help me Well, then provide that resource. Um, It doesn't mean that you have to be directly involved with it, but you're giving them a resource to go to so that they can create the right conditions. I agree with you. Fantastic. Cool. Go ahead, Jocelyn.
2: Okay. So jumping off of that, can you talk a little bit about the sympathetic nervous system and explain how that's involved in individual burnout?
0: Yeah. So there's the there's two parts of the autonomic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system, which ramps you up to this high state of stress, it's that go signal, and then there's something called the parasympathetic nervous system, which is this rest and digest state. That's really where we want to live more of our life. That's more that alert calmness. There's nothing wrong with the, the sympathetic nervous system, but when you are perpetually living in this state of sympathetic overdrive, that's where you can get into things where you there's different hormonal axes that can completely drain. So, for instance, you don't get – a spike in cortisol in the morning like you need it. That's why I talked about the sun. Now you don't get that cortisol spike like you want, and it's just a flat Or it's spiking at the wrong time of day, like before you go to bed. That actually happens with people that get burned out. And then when they're most exhausted, now they're completely alert. I actually know somebody that's happened to. It's a horrible thing. Um, and then your heart rate's elevated, and then eventually you get into just fatigue and exhaustion. It can happen. And so if you don't – here's the thing. it's If you feel like you're in this constant state of high alertness, you need to start applying some of these tools that we have. If those tools of the short-term regulation is not working, that's when you probably need to go talk to somebody. And there's nothing wrong with that. There is like zero shame if talking to somebody about I'm constantly feeling this anxious anxiety about X, Y, or Z – And then you can help bring yourself back down. You don't want to live in that state. If you feel like you're living in that state all the time and you've applied these tools like mindfulness, like the breathing, exercising, sleep, and your nutrition is dialed in, then you need to definitely go probably seek some consultation.
2: I'm going to bring this to little bit of a personal level you mentioned you have three children two prior to pandemic and then a third one in the midst of pandemic i'm also a new mom No,
0: congratulations
2: god (laughs) Um, thank you but in terms of you mentioned the cortisol spike at the you know at the wrong time when you're working full-time as you are and you have a family it's hard to carve out the time for yourself. What are some things that you do to, to make sure that you're present at work and also present uh, for your family and at life outside of work?
0: Man, you really got, I uh, got personal. And so this is totally fine because it's something that I, I no, it's fine. It's a, re- it's a real question. It's something that I wrestle with quite a bit. So I'm at home. Okay. So that's positive. I try to like the thing, the getting up in the morning and looking at the sun, I'll do it with my kids. I will literally take my baby our one-year-old out with me, like hold him. And it's something that we do together or we'll purposefully do things later in the afternoon, like around, cause there's, I left out the sunset. You also want to watch the sun go down. That'll help you get to sleep. I try to orient some of the things that are good for us physiologically. Is it something we can do as a family? I do do not, I I do not work on Sundays. When when the sun goes down and the kid, then I'll start preparing for the next week. But I like fight every instinct inside of me to work on Sundays because it will burn you out. You can pick a day of the week, whatever day of the week that is, but you need to have a day where you decompress. You do not look at your email. You try to stay off screens and you just relax. And it is very hard. But I find that if you are not giving yourself a day to relax, you're going to have problems. And that is a day to reinvest in your family, like where you're present. We're like, I wrote my my wife and kids are out of town right now and I said hey with my oldest son like what is something that we can do together every single week that would be like good time for us and on Sunday I'm just going to take that time and do it with him does that make sense yeah. so if we want to have a balance then we got to make it a priority and then maybe we can use that time to reinvest in our families or our loved ones or relationships and that will also soothe the soul so to speak.
2: Awesome. Thank you. Brian, anything to add before I hop on to the next one? Okay. So let's see. Here's a question. This is from, oh, can you talk about, does the judgment side of stress vary depending on the sense of self or ego?
0: The judgment side of stress. Yes. I think what he means is um, the perception,
1: meaning your perception of stress, does that dictate the, the response, the physiological or psychological response?
0: Yeah, I think if we're everybody has different temperaments, and I'd be lying if I was to say that my temperament isn't like when somebody comes at me that I don't want to come right back at them and I can feel myself ramp up that sh- stress continuum. That's where you have to learn self-discipline and you have to learn how to apply the tool in the moment. And that's where a sense of awareness comes in. That is mindfulness. Is like, where is my head? So if you find that you're somebody that that's very type A or whatever you want to call it, and you get, you can get ramped up really quick, then you need to be, you need to train yourself to be aware of where your head is at and where your thoughts are. So you can shift them back. You can apply the right tool in the moment and gain, regain control. Like one thing I tend to do when I'm, when I'm excited or whatever, I want to talk, it's really not the best thing sometimes. Like I need to listen. And just so I've like, really, I've come up with mechanisms to just, listen, shift my attention to that person, call my mind and listen to what they're saying and not want to be talking all the time. So I think you have to do a little bit of introspection, um, be introspective on your natural responses and where it shifts you up and down the continuum.
1: Eric, can you add to that from a coaching perspective and how you can utilize those concepts on, when you're managing or leading groups of people?
0: Yeah, but when a teammate doesn't act in an appropriate way, and your first inclination is to go off, like regaining control, and then knowing how to have a thoughtful conversation, or if you notice somebody uh, needs a little bit of prodding or encouragement, I think you have to learn your team and how they respond under pressure. And like I have somebody on my team right now, he would he wants like direct. Feedback. This was bad. This needs to be improved. He like likes that, and it puts him into the right state of mind where he can be. I have another teammate where if I were to say, I, we always try to attack the problem, but if any way, shape, or form it's related to his performance, it shuts him down, and he goes. You can just see his his countenance change. And so I think you need to see what are those triggers that stress people out, and then if you in the, like how to change your communication to deal with that. And that's also where being in the right frame of mind matters. So if you're sleep deprived, you're going to have poor emotional intelligence. You're not going to be able to read the room very well. You're going to make poor decisions. And so it's just this cycle.
1: Yeah. And I think that goes back to what we were saying before about managers uh, giving stress or taking stress away. Because a lot yes. of times it's about understanding where your team is at and what is the correct course of action for them. Not even that the correct conversation per se, or what the mm-hmm. correct playbook is or what the correct strategy is to be able to mitigate or improve
0: this issue. And that's where you guys got all these great resources. I would be looking at the problem that I have and then matching it. You can't solve everything at once, but look at the biggest need for your team and then go find the right playbook and implement it. And then once you run the course with that, then I'd go to the next one. Cool.
2: Talking more about these windows of stress. And we talked a bit about mitigating it and getting different mechanisms and coping with it can you talk a little bit about leaning into stress and how you can use that to advance or or you know supercharge uh the yeah. team in that
1: it may, and maybe that leads into this concept of readiness as well eric yeah. um because i think they do work hand in hand
0: yeah i mean i would i really say it's this neuroplasticity thing your ability to change your brain in response to your environment everybody wants to The team that learns the fastest is the team that's going to grow the fastest and be able to operate better. And so you have to be willing to lean into this sense of agitation and you need to understand that there's a neurochemical response going on that's actually going to facilitate your performance. So I did a playbook on the – here's an example. The 90-minute ultradian rhythm, okay? Every day your body has – you have a circadian 24-hour rhythm, and you have an ultradian rhythm, every 90 minutes, your body increases and decreases its state of alertness and arousal. Okay. So we're coming up on 90, 60 minutes, 90 minutes. About that time, like everybody's going to be toast. Okay. So you, I set my schedule up for my day right here in 90 minute sprints. Okay. I know that I'm only good for about six, about 90 minutes. And then I need a break because of the uh, biology behind that. So we're gonna, I'm going to lean into agitation and stress for those ninety minutes, and then I, because and because that agitation and stress is so metabolically demanding, after that you can literally measure this. You have a dip in alertness, so you need about twenty minutes to completely get away from the thing, so that you can then go back and do it again for about another ninety minutes or so. And so you should set your day up for this. And you should also be aware that your team can only handle so much. So your team meeting shouldn't last longer than 90 minutes. If you're doing that, you should expect poor attention. So lean into this for a discreet period of time and then back off and completely decompress. Like when this is over with, I'm going to go eat lunch and like just space out, (laughs) maybe go fold some laundry for about 15 or 20 minutes and then get back to work. But it's hard when you're at home to get back to work but you gotta i use different things to do that i may have a little bit of coffee i may use some different types of music and sounds to get my brain going again and then i have to lean into it but you can't expect yourself to be like that all day long there's rises and falls it's title so check out that playbook i wrote on that i think that'll really help you out All right.
1: Fantastic. Listen, Eric, this was fantastic. If you could just one more time, where can people find more information on you?
0: Yeah. So at Eric Corum, LinkedIn, Instagram, and at www.aim7aim7.com.